Law, Policy, and Markets. I'm Alan Marks. Today I'm joined by Norbert Rieger and Sebastian Heim, partners in Milbank's office in Munich, Germany. You find more investors these days who want to focus on investments that are not purely about return. And if they are also about return, that's great, but are also about doing the right things when it comes to environment or other elements that are, are important for mankind. Let's get to it. Like in the rest of the world, European companies are benefiting from investors' huge appetite for new equity offerings. Commerce depends on economic confidence plus accurate real-time information, whether at 12th century German trade fairs or on 21st century trading platforms. Medieval merchants brought their goods to central locations for market intel, price discovery, and to buy and sell. Today, e-commerce and data analytics over multinational networks serve the same goals, making trading quicker, more efficient, and more transparent. In February, Germany's first IPO of the year closed, Otto One. Es war wirklich toll. By the final bell that day, the company was valued at over 10 billion euro. Europe's largest online used car marketplace, Auto One has captured about 1% of Europe's 600 billion euro used car market, and growing. Think of it as an online trade fair for cars. The IPO speaks to investors' collective confidence in future growth from tech companies that are accelerating the digitalization of commerce. It also says a lot about the globalization of capital, both public and private, and the state of European capital markets in 2021, along with corporate governance in post-Brexit Europe. I can think of no one better to talk to about all these trends than two of the corporate lawyers who handled the IPO for Auto One, Norbert Rieger and Sebastian Heim at Milbank in Munich. So Norbert and Sebastian, thanks very much for taking the time today to get together. Pleasure. Pleasure. So you just completed the first German IPO of 2021 for Auto Eins Group. How significant was that deal for the market? Sebastian? I think it was a very significant deal for the German market because Auto One was one of the, or is one of the key German startups that has been formed quite a while ago, eight years old company. They've been very successful in the market. They've raised capital multiple times and kind of proving that uh, a German startup can make it to the public markets in such a successful way is really something that is a precedent for future tech IPOs in the German market of successful German German startups. Right. And I know you called it a tech IPO. I mean, Norbert, let's talk a little bit about what why that is, because it's a company that buys and sells used cars wholesale, but now also through Autohero at the retail level, direct to consumer. Uh, what makes this a technology company? That's a good question. We, we very often spoke about it a little bit. They basically revolutionized basically the, the, the car dealer market in Europe, first in Germany and then in other, in other countries. Auto Hero and, and Sebastian may want to speak to that as well, is the, the latest development. But generally what they basically did, they, they gathered the very fragmented used car dealer market and set it up with new technology with both B2B and B2C with customers who could get online, could basically get offers for their cars within a short period of time all tech-based. What they also do is bring together the complete European market. You sit in a city in, in northern Germany, you want to buy a certain car, and this car is available at a French dealer somewhere in, in Toulouse or whatever, and they can get that together. Really completely new setup when you think about how you, you thought about used car dealers like eight, 10 years ago, or even five years ago. 
So I suppose that would give them, I gather they now have about 1% of the European used car market. So, you know, if, if I, if I'm a consumer, I want to sell my car, I might log on to, you know, Verkaufen dein Auto and they'll purchase it. They'll find dealers who might be interested in buying it and trade it that way or trade purely wholesale between dealers. I suppose that then leads with scale to data analytics and a lot of knowledge about the market and the ability to kind of predict perhaps where demand will be, you know, seasonality or cycles to supplies, models, and of course, therefore, better pricing information, not just for them, but for the participants on the platform. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think what they really achieved is that they created kind of a database and a tech system that allowed them to make offers to sellers or consumers of uh, sellers of, of, of used cars and to be able to make them an offer basically instantly. You only have to put in some data into the system. And on that basis, they can basically give you an offer right away. You can go to one of their purchase sites and basically the car is quickly checked. And within, let's say, 30 minutes, you're able to sell your car. And I think that that was kind of the fundamental idea when they formed the company, that they wanted to have a more efficient way for people to sell their cars. And then they basically take those cars on their balance sheet and then reselling them to wholesalers, but they're also selling them to, to consumers. I think with the huge number of data that they have, they're just capable of providing prices not only quickly, but obviously competitive prices, which makes them the choice for a lot of people who want to sell or buy their cars. Now, you've been involved with the company for a while. The IPO is just the latest transaction. I know you did their convertible loan debt deal last year and, and a few years ago helped them convert to a European stock corporation, an SE. That was a kind of an unusual move for a privately held company at the time, I should think. What are some of the drivers of that and how would that relate then to the company being you know, positioned to do an IPO? When you look a little bit into the history of Auto One, even though it's only been eight and a half years or so since the company has, has been founded, I think it was the first to the second unicorn in the German startup market, very well known, very prominent in one of the financing rounds that Sebastian addressed before. Uh, they, they got, a, I think, about a quarter of a billion from SoftBank. So they were very prominent and it was pretty clear that their path was to an IPO. And moving into the, the right legal form early on, we believe actually it was a smart move because it helped them prepare it's a different corporate governance than what you typically find with limited liability companies, et cetera, help them prepare for the IPO, set it up the right way, and also achieve other governance benefits from, from this move into this, into this legal form. But that was one of the first things that we've done for them. That's true. So if you look at German companies generally, or European companies for that matter, in the current market, especially the ones that are backed by venture capital investors, why now? What's magic about the timing now, other than there's just so much liquidity? you know, sloshing around the markets. Why would the VCs exit in the current market and not wait, given that they're sitting on such a you know positive growth story, not just with this company, but with others? Uh, look at how this company has grown within eight years. Most of these investors have been in for long. So they came in when this company had a value, which was like 1% of today's value, 2% of today's value. For a reasonable VC investor, there's a point in time where you want to exit. But also the company had access to the capital markets, didn't require more fundraising, like a typical VC fundraising, but capital markets fundraising, which obviously is beneficial for the company and for the for the shareholders. So I think that's that's was that was why they were, were interested in doing it. When you look at the capital markets, I think everybody in amongst the banks would tell you very hot markets, very interested in tech companies, growth stories, and, and that's why it made sense for them. 
Yeah, this really is a you know a global story too. I, we were just talking on a recent episode of this podcast with some of our partners in Sao Paulo and looking at the Brazilian market. And if you if you look globally at these things, last year twenty uh, twenty was the first year when global IPOs, including some follow on offerings, exceeded one trillion U.S. dollars. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a massive appetite for risk at a time when global interest rates are quite low and liquidity is quite high. Is the risk appetite in, among European institutional investors as well as the general public likely to get a boost from the optimism around post-COVID recoveries of economies, assuming vaccinations and things proceed during the course of this year? Or would you expect there to be somewhat of a pullback and maybe we're in a you know, momentary hot window of you know, you know, 12 or 24 months? And I know it's hard to predict, but just but kind of your gut instinct based on your years of practice. I would probably say that based on how the market functions and people looking at, at successful IPOs in the tech space, that people are going to have more confidence in the capital markets and, and, and are looking at those stories and obviously uh, trying to get a fair share of that. Um, I think at the same time, when you look at the investor base also that we had in, in case of IPO, a, in Auto One in the IPO, you see it's a very international investor base. So I think overall, worldwide, basically, investors are looking at valuable companies. I wouldn't say that that an IPO in Germany is really dependent on, on the German consumer or the German investor base investing in that company. But you basically now go out there worldwide and try to find the most reputable investors that, that really believe in your story. Yeah, and, and this the auto one transaction is interesting because you 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 not only have initial public offering of shares by the company, which diversifies its capital, but you also had selling shareholders that were realizing value at the same time. And pre IPO, I know the valuation targets that were mentioned in the press ended up you know, being vastly exceeded by the time you know the paper hit the street. You mentioned corporate governance too, Norbert. If we come back to that, how important are corporate governance or ESG concerns as far as disclosures or, or investor appetite today? Let me first speak to governance. The one thing that you need to realize, when you look at a German company, it's very much different from what the Anglo-Saxon market is. We have a two-tier structure in the, in the governance. We have what we call a supervisory board and an executive board, not a one-tier board structure, which you see in basically all Anglo-Saxon and not, not only Anglo-Saxon markets. So I think governance is important in a German IPO in particular because you have to explain that to international shareholders. And that Sebastian said, I don't recall exactly how many times the IPO of Auto Eins was was oversubscribed, but this was a very international investor base. And so they want to understand the governance. You want to explain things to the investors, in particular around capital authorizations, uh, how the structure works, what's the role of a supervisory board. It's important to internationalize your structure as much as you can. But interestingly, uh, while we allow one-tier board structures in Germany, uh, I don't think there is any public company that is structured that way because in Germany, we're just used to different governance structures. So I think it is important for the investors to understand it and therefore to think that investing in a German company in a German SE or sometimes AG isn't worse for them than investing in any other structures that they know. Thanks, Norbert. Sebastian, what about the other parts of ESG, sustainability and resilience in particular? Are those growing concerns I know we've seen in the European Union and in the UK and for the United States SEC, kind of this increased emphasis on setting up task forces, coming up with rules for disclosures around sustainability issues, there's the standards are still very much in flux. I don't think we've seen 
consistency, but we are starting to see more coordination around kind of more specific metrics that can be used and disclosure rules around them uh, that tie both to securities laws and also to accounting rules and, and how those kind of risk factors might impact on, on financial metrics. How do you see that playing out in Europe in the next year? No, I think it, it's definitely something that it's on, is on people's mind. We see that more and more also when it comes to discussions around remuneration or compensation for board members, that you're always talking about KPIs that are relevant when you try to determine certain portions of the variable com compensation of, of executive board members. In the past, obviously, those were always kind of only financial targets, growth, EBDA, sales growth, stuff like that in particular for startup companies. But nowadays, whenever you have that kind of discussion, people are also looking at ESG. And I think they always want to have a certain ESG element to the compensation structure. At the same time, people are realizing that it's not an easy one because you obviously have to kind of make it measurable and just paying compensation based on people uh, employees giving you good reviews or something like that might not be sufficient. So it's hard to come up kind of with a quantitative system uh, to, to kind of measure that qualitative criteria, but it's something that people are looking at. So far, I think proportion is compared to financial targets still low, but it's, it, it's definitely something that people are more and more looking at. And we, we expect this to be more and more relevant also in the, in the European and German market. And is, that, is there a difference between the public markets and private markets? I know there's a lot of private equity investors that are also becoming, either they're becoming more sensitive to sustainability issues or they're finding it to be an effective way to market to raise money for funds. Those are not really exactly the same thing <laughs> as far as drivers go. But <laughs> how, about, how about the PE market, Norbert? It's not the same thing, you're right. But I think generally the markets go in that direction. An element is diversity that private equity funds are very much focused on. Sustainability, today you find sometimes funds that have sustainability as one of their key investment features, not just like an element of it, but a key function. There's actually recently funds that call themselves sustainability funds because they are very focused on, on, on these elements. I'm not sure there's much of a difference these days anymore. Obviously, if you hold a company privately and you've got the sole owner, you basically, you can do whatever you want. You're not responsible to anything or anybody other than your own persuasions. But I would say private equity markets and public markets are no longer as different as they were like 10 years ago when it comes to the focus on, on these topics. And, and also, I think I'm totally, I totally agree with what Sebastian said. It's very difficult to deal with these elements, for example, in compensation, because they are not quantitative, but qualitative. But then again, Ever since we have compensation for, for executive board members, we always had discretionary elements. They were very often not quantitative, but the shift of these qualitative elements towards ESG is very strong lately. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. If you look historically, for example, the partnership between equity owners and labor in management of German companies and ownership of German companies, that's an area where there was an alignment of interest, which was sometimes more subjective, if you will, or cultural than it was purely economic, although it had economic benefits, which is very different from you might find in you know Anglo-American markets and, and organization. So that subjectivity doesn't strike me as something new, but the, the areas of emphasis maybe are. How much of that is a, is a realization that some of those other concerns, maybe non-easily quantifiable concerns, are ways to create value? And how much of it is it that they might just mitigate risk on the downside? That's a good question. I 
I think you find both. Obviously, if somebody raises a fund that is completely focused on sustainability, that can't just be because they want to do something good. But at the end, it's about finding investors who want to support it. But you find more investors these days who want to focus on investments that are not purely about return. And if they are also about return, that's great, but are also about doing the right things when it comes to environment or other elements that are, are important for mankind. So I think there is a clear clear shift lately. We, we know investors, private investors, family offices, who basically select their investments based on ESG aspects. Sebastian, what do you think? I think it's a very competitive market out there. Obviously, I mean, I think people are to a certain extent obviously also using that in order to distinguish themselves kind of from other investors who who don't have that so much on their agenda. So I think in a market where sellers of companies or or parties seeking and seeking investors usually have the choice between multiple investors, I think that it's obviously also something where you can distinguish yourself and basically say here and you're looking at this, the, the new generation is, is is interested in that. And on that basis, we are the right partner for you. We are the right owner or co-owner of your business. So I think as Norbert said, there, there are obviously two, two elements to that. I know it's true for technology companies, for sure. Is that true in equally in other sectors as well? If you look at for example, some have been adversely affected by the pandemic, like transportation, transport, hospitality. There may be differences there in their ability to access capital, period, at the moment, absent government support. But you know, as things stabilize, will there be other sectors, maybe retail, some services, which will still be more localized, whereas other fields like technology, more growth stories will, will be more global in their reach? I mean, I think it clearly depends, right, on what on what the the business model of the respective business is. If if you're very localized, I think you're gonna have a like in the abstract gonna have a harder time finding an international investor base. If you have a business model that basically scales across borders and where there's a clear international growth story behind it, I think you're gonna have an easier time selling that to an international investor base. So I think. The answer is there are going to be differences based on on what the businesses are actually doing and and how enticing international investors are going to find the respective business model. There's an area we haven't really talked about, and that's tax, because obviously for a lot of cross-border businesses, whether they're accessing capital markets, deciding where to have their investments, deciding their corporate structures, the cross-border tax planning is extremely complicated. And we saw with the changes in the U.S. tax law as it applies to global enterprises in 2017 and possible changes, at least in corporate tax rates here under the new administration, and how that interplays with some of the decisions in Europe from the ECJ in particular, but but also competing interests that national tax authorities have within and outside the, the European Union. Is tax structuring becoming more complicated or is there a trend toward harmonization again that'll make things a little more predictable? It's becoming more and more complicated, even on a national level. Tax authorities, tax legislation becomes more uh, complex, more sophisticated in some respects. Harmonization doesn't really exist. On any transaction that is, has an international impact, we still do our analysis. What's the best holding company, for example? There's reasons why there is two or three jurisdictions where it always makes sense to have a holding company in Luxembourg. But by the way, interestingly, also in, uh, in the UK, you would think that things may have changed to the negative because of the Brexit, dropping out of the EU system, EU parent subsidiary directive. The UK has such a 
strong, and I should say England in this context, such a strong double tax treaty network that they're still very competitive when it comes to structuring of transactions. So I think tax has become much more complicated, true, also international context. But I wouldn't say that when it comes to the capital markets, there is sufficient differences that this would affect any investment, investment strategy or willingness to invest into a certain market. When you invest into a German company, I don't think you're worse off than investing in most other jurisdictions. So for, for the specific topic of an IPO, of, of a structural transaction, I don't think it makes much of a difference. But generally, yes, taxes play more and more an important role in all of these situations. Yeah, I know in my own transactions, we're often looking at these competing questions of how you deal with minimizing lawfully income tax, taxes, whether it was withholding taxes or others on cross-border payments of, for debt or equity, and then trying to streamline that with management and how the business is actually going to be run and whether you have centralized cash management or not across these different divisions. Complexity is sometimes necessary, but you want to keep it as simple as you can in order to achieve those multiple kind of conflicting goals. That's a very good point. Never structure a company in a certain way or make your management take decisions in a certain jurisdiction just because it's tax beneficial. Uh, I think the general principle is always you follow what, what the organization needs and how it is best managed. Now, investors in capital markets offerings are usually optimists by nature, or at least are risk takers, and maybe not always as attuned to what can happen when the wheels come off the train. But I know there are differences in restructuring based on jurisdiction, certainly between Europe and Britain, that are very different from how the U.S. bankruptcy law works. Do investors ever really care about that? Or is that something that they only discover later if there's a problem? No, I really think that's something that people discover if there's a problem. I don't think, at least when you're investing into like a growing company like Auto One, that you're really thinking about where could we eventually restructure that company if 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 that became a scenario. So I don't think that is something that people are looking at when they're making the investment into a flourishing company. At the same time, when it comes to a restructuring of an entity, uh, as you as you rightfully said, there there's a lot of consideration since going into where can we best do that? Uh, can we shift the headquarters of the company to a more favorable jurisdiction? Usually those structures have entities in multiple jurisdictions and then you have to see how the various kind of restructuring proceedings would relate to each other. So there it becomes really complicated. And I would say probably similar to the tax issue, the more jurisdictions you have, the more complicated it becomes and different layers in terms of restructuring. But I don't think that's something that's on, on, on people's mind when they, when they invest in, in, in a growing company. If, if I may add that, when you ask this question, I was thinking that very often our private equity investors do not even think about how they can exit from the investment when they make it, certainly let alone what the impacts would be if they had to restructure a business. I think it's even, even more so for somebody who makes capital investments in public companies. Yeah. Well, actually, let me stand that there for a second. For, for PE investors who are looking at their potential exit eventually, maybe they've got a closed-end fund or they've just you know have a certain time horizon in mind to maximize their return, because of IPOs like Auto One, is it more likely that PE investors are looking again at the public markets as, an, as a preferred exit? Because I know for the last few years, at least on a global basis, maybe non-European basis more, the idea was often that you would be selling to a different fund or a different private buyer or do some kind of a strategic combination, it wasn't always looking like it had been historically to, to public offerings. 
But wouldn't you say like 15 years ago, a secondary from one fund to the other was an unnormal thing, very unusual? 15 years ago, yes. Today, you see them all the time. Right, exactly. There were times when IPOs were great, and then they were not. I think that's not sure how Sebastian, you see that, but I felt that it's much more market-driven than anything. At the end, it's about value creation. Unless the company is so large or the, the antitrust concerns are so big that you cannot even sell it in a trade sale, the decision between a trade sale and IPO at the end will be value-driven. And currently, the markets are great. So a lot of our private equity clients look into exiting through IPOs. Whether this is still the case in three years from now, I think depends more on the markets than on anything else. So one year from now, for each of you, if your last, kind of your last prediction, and obviously we could have shocks and things we don't expect, but if things go on the current trajectory and public policy and pandemics and markets and interest rates and all kind of proceed as it looks like they are currently doing here at the beginning of 2021, a year from now, how do you think the markets will be different or will they? I think it very much depends, obviously, on how public markets develop generally. As we all know, there's a lot of capital to be invested. So people are going out there looking for attractive targets. What we see, for example, also in private sales processes is that it's super competitive for for bidders. So you really have to put your best foot forward. You have to be super fast. You have to be really willing to accept a lot of the terms that the sellers are asking from you in order to actually get a deal, a lot of preemptive bids. So on that basis, and, and due to the kind of the pause, COVID cause that we had like during, let's say, March through June, July last year, I think there's a, there's a lot of catch up to be done. And if everything kind of stays the same in, in those respects, as you mentioned them, I, I would expect the market still, still to be pretty hot and, and competitive. Good. Thank you, Sebastian. Norbert? I would agree. And I would probably add that at the same time, the capital markets, when it comes to public capital markets, IPOs, et cetera, are always not only just dependent on where the interest rates are or other influences go. There's a lot of, I would say, financial emotion in it. Like half a year ago, everybody was saying markets are hot, markets are great, you have to do this. Still, everybody says this, but then you can see some signs of, of you know, concerns here and there. So what I would say is what, what Sebastian said is absolutely right for the general capital markets, private equity. When it comes to IPOs, I think there's much more influences than just, just those. And, and you know, if there's some external impacts that like COVID, obviously, or, or other impacts who, who suddenly come up, they can change irrespective of the financial underlying information like interest rate, et cetera. So I wonder whether the capital markets in a year from now, when it comes to IPOs, equity capital markets will still be as hot as they are today. I mean, back to Altines, a company that went public at 7.9 billion and on the first day of trading went up to, I think, 11 something. I'm not sure how often we've seen that. And certainly it's due to the you know, particular interest in out to one, but it's also due to the market. So if your question is, where do we see the, the IPO markets in a year from now? You can't predict and you cannot be sure that they are as hot as they are today. Yeah, that's true. And of course, markets are emotional things because they're collections of cognitive dissonance <laughs> in a lot of ways. It's that, and they, don't, they don't actually price value or risk. They price perceptions of risk and expected values. And that's, of course, a human activity and prone to error. Well, thank you. This has been a terrific conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time and congratulations again on getting the IPO closed in February. Thank you very much. Thanks for taking the time. 
Thank you for joining us on another episode of Law, Policy, and Markets, Milbank Conversations. Follow us on your favorite podcast platform and learn more at milbank.com.